Welcome to Innovate at Open, the podcast that explores open source through the lenses of distributed collaboration, collective invention, and technology creation. I'm your host, Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat. Hi, everyone. This is Gordon Half, technology evangelist with Red Hat, back with another episode of Innovate at Open. We're going to do something a bit different today. In January of this year, we had a research day in Bruno in the Czech Republic. This is where Red Hat Research got started, where many of our engineers live and work, and where we have partnerships with the great research universities there. So we had a lot of interesting talks at this event. You can learn more by going to research.redhat.com, but I want to give you a quick taste by putting together three shorter interviews that give you a nice sample of the day's scope. Kit Murdoch starts us out talking about software-based fault injection attacks. Red Hat's own Uli Drepper then discusses how to avoid making bad decisions when operating your infrastructure. And finally, Martin Ukrop shares his research into how developers interact with TLS certificates. Take it away, Kit. Hi, I'm Kit. Uh, I'm a PhD student at Birmingham University, and I'm mostly looking at hardware faults. You gave a really interesting talk today with the rather provocative title of Thunderbolt, which is about exploits of which there seem to be an endless number these days. Could you talk to us about the the basic nature of this exploit? Okay, so the exploit's called Plundervolt. Uh, which is sort of a mix of undervolting and plundering, stealing something. And the reason it's called Plundervolt is that we've done something a little bit different. We're undervolting Intel chips because we managed to find an undocumented model-specific register that lets you do that. So we lower the voltage on Intel chips and it produces tiny little errors. These tiny little errors are bit flips. And one of the things we discovered was that they're consistent. So you always get the same bit flip if you're trying to do one specific multiplication. It never changes. And that's kind of interesting because there's been a lot of research, which obviously we just plundered. There's been a lot of research on how to use bit flips to mount an attack. So we used other people's research and we mounted three main attacks, really, which were an RSA attack, um, an AES attack, and also a memory corruption attack. But the bit that makes it interesting is that these were attacks against SGX. And SGX should not be able to be attacked. That's the whole point of Intel's software guard extensions, is that that little enclave should be totally safe, even from someone who is root on the same machine. Is this the sort of thing that you see as being mostly kind of theoretical or do you see this as being something that could legitimately be exploited? That's a good question. Um, The way we went about the attacks was just to run them lots and lots and lots of times, which in the real world isn't something you'd probably do. You'd probably want to do a timing attack. We were really doing proof of concepts. But there's lots of occasions when you do have the opportunity to run something again and again and again. Like if you were trying to attack a travel card, for example, if you've got the travel card in your hand, you can attack it again and again and again. So there would be things that you you could run. For example, like on an enclave, sometimes you might store someone's fingerprint 
profile. And that's stored in an enclave because if you get hold of my computer, you shouldn't be able to hunt around in the memory and find the profile of my thumbprint. But if you have the computer and you have enough time, you could just repeatedly attack and attack and attack and attack and attack and attack as many times as you want. So I think there probably are some real cases that you could use it for, but we didn't do any of those. We were really doing a proof of concept. In general, it seems like we're in a world where a lot of these things that we have historically considered, hey, that's a solved problem, it's safe, uh, all these cash attacks that we've also heard about today, and now I'm almost feeling like I'm in Battlestar Galactica and we'll turn off all the computers. Yeah, and the really weird thing is, even though I'm in hardware, every time somebody else comes out with an exploit or an attack, I go, wow, I never thought of that. And then another thing that comes out, and you're like, what? How did they think of that? It is, it's a war of attrition. We are kind of every time someone takes one step forward, somebody else takes a, t- a step forward. I'll be interested to know if we ever get to a point where, where you sort of can't attack anymore. I, don't, I just don't think it's possible. The only thing that is interesting is that the number of things you can attack is growing because the number of things out there is growing. So researchers are just... They're getting into these really quirky, tiny little spaces and doing these mind-blowingly creative attacks. So to answer your question, I don't think it's ever going to end. Yeah, I suppose at one level you sort of go, well, this what's the likelihood that I'm going to be attacked this way? On the other hand, you look at things like Internet of Things and what if someone figures out an attack that can affect everybody's autonomous vehicle, for example. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we think things are irrelevant, but it's only when you put all the little pieces together that it actually becomes an attack. You know, really simple things like people not changing their default passwords on something they think is irrelevant has proved to be horrific when someone mounts a botnet attack. And you go, well, it doesn't matter. It's just my little Internet of Thing thing. You know, why should that matter? Well, on its own, it doesn't. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, scale has its own set of problems. And I think that's, it doesn't matter that your particular laptop is potentially vulnerable to someone who has physical access to it. Probably not. But we talk about these replicated devices where once you figure out how to breach one manufacturer's model, well, you're actually breaching a million different devices or you know, one traffic light you're actually figured out a way to breach a million traffic lights. Yeah, and I think with our attack, where it becomes really interesting is cloud computing. So it's all very well saying, well, it's only my laptop. I've only broken into SGX on my laptop. What if you're an administrator of a cloud computing company? You actually have access to a whole host of computers. And should you be able to see what data they're putting in the SGX portion? Of course not. But if you can control the voltage in your cloud computing device, you can possibly start reading other people's private data. But insider attacks are never a problem, are they? <laughs> I know, yes. I don't have anything to add to that. Yeah, insiders, they're all good guys. All right, I'm Uli Drepper. Work in the CTO office, um, mostly on machine learning and specifically also on the intersection of machine learning and system research, system uh, 
software and so on. And nowadays, I'm mostly working on the research side with universities, etc. So today, you were talking about heuristics and system management and operating systems. Can you give us a gist of what your talk was? The talk was about getting developers basically interested in applying machine learning to areas which they never really have uh, considered before. So. Uh, if a developer, uh, uh, a good developer in this case, is uh, coming across a part of the program which he or she does not really know what the correct value of something is or that he or she knows that it can vary in correctness and optimal optimality over time and so on, they will introduce some form of configuration variable or make it configurable like compile time, etc. These kind of things. These kind of values are basically heuristics which are determined based on the biases of the developer maybe even through some uh, objective measurements but this does not mean that these are actually correct values for all situations or even uh, will remain stable uh, the, the correct results over time so my argument is that instead of doing these kind of things instead of making heuristics and configuration variable and etc. compile time variables and so on utilize machine learning by introducing models for which are uh, can as an output propose values for the relevant uh, configuration variables and settings in the program itself. So the idea is that with uh, enough information from the subject matter expert who is the programmer or the user of the program itself, we collect data and uh, with an appropriately chosen cost function, we can develop models which can suggest even at runtime, even online learning mechanism to uh, adjust the settings of the program so that it runs more optimal for the situation. So this can be used in many different situations. So it can be done for controlling the, the performance of a program by selecting appropriate buffer sizes. But it can also be used in, in situations like system administrators are finding themselves in all the time. So to detect perhaps anomalous uh, operations or anomalous behavior, etc. And these kind of things will unless uh, these kind of situations are always always subject to change over time. So, for instance, if you're looking at uh, at performance monitoring, uh, which an assistant administrator has to do, the what is today normal might not be normal tomorrow because the, the total system use is actually increasing. Or we have variability in the form of seasonality of over the day, over the year, over the month, over the week, etc. So this kind of thing is not something which can be statically modeled by a single value. So we actually have to do something more and by applying the machine learning techniques which we have available nowadays, we can actually write a robust uh, framework which can potentially create such a model. And, we, and for that, but for that to be actually useful, we need to develop us actually willing to accept that we can actually utilize these kind of models. This means that they have to actually write the programs so that they emit appropriate information which we can feed into the model. We can have to identify other sources of information like system profiling tools and so on. And then uh, also provide mechanisms to adjust the program perhaps at runtime to utilize the new settings. So there's all kinds of things which have to be done and the part which is the machine learning itself is actually only a small part.
just a couple of questions that I think are maybe kind of related. One is, do you see this as augmenting the human function here? In other words, is, is this a, you see this as advisory sort of thing or as something that is sort of autonomous, is doing its own thing? And the second, perhaps related question is, how important is it that what this model was doing is explainable to the human operators. It, it's very much related, I guess. Uh, so the first iteration of any kind of model when it's applied will probably will be a bad idea to uh, to feed this directly back into the system. So it should be perhaps at the beginning really be a recommendation system and should be supervised by something. But we could also go it a little bit differently so we can make the program automatically recognize certain situations which are really not useful or we can monitor the system so that it recognizes if something goes wrong as a, as a second step so that we can have a much more more autonomous system, but just like for the entire cloud infrastructure, we the scalability aspects of this will require that there's a large amount of autonomy, which basically built in. We just have to get to the point that we actually can trust the model. This is where your second part of the problem comes in. So if we can explain what the model does, or at least uh, get some additional output, except for the in the, the the one outward set change the setting, but perhaps also again, well, because of that, or uh, these are the error ranges, etc. And then perhaps we can get more trusted in the model. And we can actually apply it directly and so on. But in in any case, this is an area which is completely under researched. So most of the machine learning world is is uh, concerned with uh, with applications of machine learning models where the consequence of wrong predictions are really not problematic. So uh, some social network proposes to you someone as your new best friend who is completely uh, wrong for you. So what's the bad consequence of this? That's nothing. But getting a setting wrong which says, well, yeah, your process now gets four terabytes of main memory for utilization. So go ahead and do this. This might actually starve down all kinds of other sources and the entire world might break down because of that. So that's a, that's a bad thing to do. So you know, obviously to completely trust this unless we actually can verify that the models are working. Uh, hi, I'm Martin Ukrop uh, from Masaryk University uh, in Czech Republic. Uh, I'm doing my PhD in cooperation with Red Hat, uh, and it's a research on usable security. What problem are you trying to solve here? For quite some time, it's known that uh, some tools, and especially security tools, are not used for the common end user. But at some point, we realized that they may not be as usable for the developers and the IT professionals either. So we uh, took a focus and we are interested in uh, TLS certificates or X509 certificates in general and investigating the tools and their usability towards the IT professionals. And what we found out is that it's actually far from ideal because uh, the developers don't understand what errors happen when there's an error, whether it's severe, what they should do about it, which actually ends up in uh, very bad security decisions done at the developer's side, not even at the end user side. And we're trying to analyze the tools, uh, see the developers interacting with the tools with the aim of improving the tools in the end. What specific studies have you done so far? We've had 
two research booths at DEFCONF in Bernal. We're just about to have a third one. And we've invited users to interact with uh, OpenSSL to generate uh, TLS certificates, to validate TLS certificates, and to see whether the tool is usable enough for them to do that. Uh, and the following year, we more focused on the error messages that can happen while validating the certificates. So showing the users different problems that can arise while validating certificates uh, and asking them whether they understand what happened, whether they know what would they do next and what the problem actually was and whether it's severe. How would you characterize the results from good to bad? Well, the usability of some parts of the tools are basically terrible, uh, but it's great to see that... Uh, the developers uh, of these tools, which we are communicating with, actually know that sometimes and, I tr uh, and are actually actively trying to improve that. They are very happy to see the results and to know what are the more problematic parts to focus on. And we've even had uh, some parts fixed re independently of our research in the meantime. So obviously the developers themselves were aware of the drawbacks and managed to get it fixed themselves, which is a great thing to hear. So what's the next steps for you? Well, uh, in the area of certificate validation, we decided to consolidate the wider environment of getting the, the documentation and errors of multiple libraries that are used at the same place. Uh, ideally devise a sort of standard or a unified scheme and then offer that back to the developers uh, with the aim of saving them work to have to formulate all the errors and the work of testing it. And... Uh, making the, the errors better because we would, we would design them, test them and offer them, offer it to them to take. And this is the x509.org website you've created. Yes, that's the idea of the website, uh, which starts from the OpenSSL errors and uh, progressively gets in more libraries with a little bit of our research on what would the developers like in the documentation and the error messages, what would they like less. And in the upcoming weeks and months, we would like to email the developers of multiple libraries to start to collect their ideas, opinions and tips for improvement. Well, in closing, what are you going to be asking about at this TEPCOM? We'll be asking the developers on, uh, we'll be showing them different uh, versions of documentations and asking them which one they prefer, why they prefer it, what they lack in the documentation, to have a general guess and to see whether it's generalizable across the whole body of developers or just everyone has its own style and we can't have a unified stuff that would at least work for the majority, if not for all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovate at Open. For future episodes, subscribe to Innovate at Open on your favorite podcast app. You can also go bitmason, B-I-T-M-A-S-O-N, dot blogspot dot com for show notes, blogs, and a full archive of episodes and more. Thank you for listening. This is Gordon Half, Technology Evangelist at Red Hat.